So we are in our third week here of discussing this sermon series on fear. And again, we just talked in the beginning about how the disciples, again, were afraid. But we have to remember that again, when we have God, we have Christ in our lives, right? That that fear should subside. And last week we talked about the fear of man. uh, And we we talked about the pressures that are put on us. Um, But... If, if we have Christ, our eternity is secure, and God reminds us that we should fear the one that can take the soul, and that can never be stripped away from us by anybody in this world. Uh, and so we can confidently come to the Father before that. So we're going to continue talking today about what we shouldn't fear, and then the last two weeks, again, we'll talk about the things that we should be afraid of. Now, I'm a uh, big history guy. I teach social studies. Uh, And after D-Day on World War II, the the Americans continued to push further uh, on towards Germany. Well, Hitler and and the Germans had one big final push. They weren't ready to give up. And so they had this desire that they were going to try to kind of push to the coast and, and split the American army, get access to the sea, and, and the Germans had thought, you know, we can still win this war. And so in um, December 16th, 1944, this would begin what was known as the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and so what we had was about 200,000 Germans with about 2,000 uh, Panzer tanks, which some of the most feared tanks at that time, compared to the Americans, who had about 85,000 troops and only about 250 tanks. And the area that they were going to kind of really push through was this area in Germany known as the Ardennes Forest, which real thick, very, very cold time of year. Uh, And the, the, the American troops that were stationed were actually stationed there to be on rest. And so these four divisions of American soldiers who were supposed to be getting a break from the war were now going to experience one of the greatest and heaviest fighting that would happen. Uh, And so as the first day happens, the Germans begin to, to push in. And one of the areas that they began to push in on was this town known as Bastogne. And this was held by the, uh, the Airborne 101st Division, so very popular uh, if you've seen the movie Band of Brothers. And so their job was to hold this city. And this was a very, very critical city because if you could get it, it had all of these major roads pouring out into the other parts. So the Germans really desired to get this. And so as they came in, they eventually surrounded the town of Bastogne, and the Germans decided, instead of constantly just pushing through, let's give them an ultimatum. And so they sent four German soldiers with a letter. And let me read uh, a piece of what this letter actually said. It said, there's only one possibility to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation. That is the honorable surrender of the encircled town. In order to think it over, a term of two hours will be granted, beginning with a presentation of this note. And then after those two hours, a bombardment would begin where they would decimate the town. And so this letter eventually makes its way all the way up to the chain of command uh, to General um, Anthony McAuliffe, who was actually asleep at the time. And they woke him up and they said, hey, you know, this is about what's to happen. So he got himself up and they were starting to kind of strategize and think about what they were going to do. Well, another call comes back to McAuliffe and they say, hey, the Germans are still waiting for an answer. You haven't responded to them yet. 
And so as they began to talk about what they should respond with, somebody said, well, General McAuliffe, why, why don't you actually go with the answer that you first said to us when you woke up, when we, when we presented you this information? And so that's what they decided to go with. And if you don't know this story, here's what they responded with. December 22nd, 1944, to the German commander, nuts. <laughs> that was it. That was the only reply that was given back. And so these American troops went back with the Germans to the German line and they gave it to the German commander. And the German commander read this and he said, I don't understand, what does this mean? And so he said, I'm going to clean up a bit of the language here. Uh, but he basically said this. He said, we will not surrender and we will kill every single one of you. And that town held and those American troops did not surrender and they never were captured and Germany never captured that critical town. And a few weeks later, they would continue to push on uh, and, and the, the fighting would stop and the Americans and the Russians would make it into Germany and the war in Europe would be over. And so I start with that because I'm thinking, how many of us feel that way right now? How many of us feel that pressure of the world beginning to surround us? And we feel outmanned. We feel there's a lack of supplies. And boy, isn't it cold outside sometimes. Well, we have to realize that as Christians, guys, the world's always pushing in on us. The world's always coming after us. You know, right now in this, in this world, they say the persecution of Christians is actually one of the greatest human rights violation. They say one in eight Christians, especially in the area of China, the Middle East, and Central Africa, live in high persecution areas, which means there is the constant potential to die for your faith. One in eight Christians. But that's never talked about on the news, is it? That's never brought about as an issue because, see, the world doesn't care. And so we have to again remember, though, God cares. And what we're experiencing is nothing new. God has seen this before, and God's people have been persecuted ever since the very beginning. The world has been out to get us as Christians. And so as we go through this passage today, again, my desire is that we would continue to hold firm as the church, that we would continue to resist and fight against the pressures of this world, and that we would not give in. And more than that, more than that, that we would be the people that God designed us to be. So that's what I, I'm desiring to do. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Um, and if you want to kind of bookmark, I'm actually going to hop, hop between... 2 Chronicles 32, and then I'm also going to be going back and forth with 2 Kings 18 and 19. So 2 Chronicles 32 and 2 Kings 18 19, if you want to just slide something in there. Um, and just so you guys know, if you, when you read through the Bible, Kings and Chronicles sounds like you're actually reading the same story. That's why I'm using both of these passages. So just to give you a little bit of Bible knowledge here... Um, Kings was written during the time of the exile to, in the Babylonians. And Chronicles was written about 100 years after they got out of exile. And so it's a retelling of the same story of the Israelites' history. But what 
Kings tries to do, and Kings tends to focus on both kingdoms, Judah and Israel, it really focuses much more on the disobedience of God's people, which caused the exile, where Chronicles tends to focus on just Judah and the temple itself, and is much more about the redemptive history and, and future salvation of God's people. Okay, so it's the same story, but there's a little bit of a different angle. So, for instance, when you read in Kings about King David, that's where you get a lot of the bad stuff and all the, the bad things he did. But when you read it in Chronicles, it's like David was like perfect and never did anything wrong because, again, the nature of what the authors were trying to do for each of those. So just to kind of give you that little bit. But again, I'm going to focus more so on Chronicles, but I'll be diving into Second Kings as well. So just a little quick background. After the Exodus, God's people wander through the desert. Right. God establishes for Joshua that he's going to go in and reconquer the promised land. And so he goes in conquers the promised land, and then after Joshua, we have these series of different judges that end up ruling uh, Israel. And then after some time, the people come and they say, we want a king. We want to be like everyone else. And, and basically, uh, Samuel says, guys, this is not going to go well for you. You really don't want this, but they push through with it. And so God says, we're going to give it to them. And so then we have King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. Well, after King Solomon, then there's this division amongst the people. And this is where we get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, so we have the divided kingdom. And typically, not that everybody was perfect, but the northern kingdom of Israel was a lot worse. They really were not following God, where Judah tended to have some moments of prosperity and success and, and worshiping and following God. But they also had some of their failures as well. Well, as these other empires are raging around, again, Assyria comes in, and it conquers the northern king of, uh, of Israel at this point. And now it's starting to push down. And it's desiring to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And at this point, we have King Hezekiah. And Judah's position is going to kind of vacillate between Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. And it's just going to kind of keep going back and forth between these different alliances for whatever is going to suit them best. But Hezekiah comes along. And Hezekiah is a pretty good king of, of Judah here. And he calls Israel back to worship the one true God. And here's what it says in 2 Kings 18. It said, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all of the kings of Judah, either before him or after. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. And he kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And so at this point, Hezekiah says, I'm going to rebel against Assyria, and I'm not going to give it. Okay? So now it's about 705 BC. Assyria has made its way through about 40 different cities, and it's standing on the doorstep of Jerusalem, and it's ready to make its final push and completely conquer God's people. Okay? So 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. So Assyria comes down and says, I want to conquer. We're going to take you over. Now, I want us to start and realize something here. What did we just say? Hezekiah was a pretty good king. He brought everyone back. See, he had so faithfully done. Guys, our faithfulness and our obedience to God 
is not a protection against injustice and, in, and evil. Okay? I want us to be clear because a lot of times we go, God, I'm following you. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Why are bad things still happening? Okay? That was never a promise to us. Okay? God calls us to faithfulness, but he doesn't say, if you're faithful, life is going to be perfectly fine. So we see very much right here with Hezekiah, this is not a guarantee on the protection of our lives. What God did promise us is that God promised us he would always be with us. Okay, that's what we need to keep in mind. All right, so Hezekiah's out there. He's followed him. And now let's see what Hezekiah decides to do. Starting in verse 2. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all of the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then they worked hard, repairing all of the broken sections of the wall and building the towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. And he also made large number of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate. And he encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had said. All right, so this is a very logical strategy here. He says, okay, first off, let's, let's prep ourselves. We're going to cut off the water supply. That way they can't get any water. We're going to rebuild the walls. We're going to get ready to fight this battle. And then he does something even more important. He reminds the people, he says, guys, Remember, we have the Almighty God. The power in God is greater than the power of this Assyrian army. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged in what is about to happen, even though there is a vast army out there that stands against us. Okay? So, so Hezekiah has done right here. He's pointing the people in the right direction, and he's preparing for this battle. Now we're going to see what Assyria responds with. So, 2 Kings 18, verse 21. He says, look now, this is, this is king of Assyria. Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. So first off, he says, look, you're going to rely on Egypt to help you out. He said, that's not going to go well. That's a splintered reed. Matter of fact, you relying on Egypt is actually going to get you hurt in this process. Okay? So Hezekiah, I don't know what you're thinking by trying to find some sort of alliance because it's not going to go well. Okay? So then he goes on, verses 23-24. He says, I could give you 2,000 horses. Even if you could put riders on them, how could you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So the second thing he says, he says, look, I could give you all the stuff you needed militarily-wise, and guess what? You wouldn't stand against me. No army has been able to stand against the Assyrian army. So I could provide you all of the resources and supplies, and you still couldn't beat the least of my generals. Okay? And then the third thing, 
31 and 32. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. So he's saying to Hezekiah, he says, listen, just make peace with us. Let, let's, let's stop the nonsense. We don't have to fight about this. Matter of fact, you can just kind of surrender now and you're going to get to enjoy all of the blessings. Right? Come, come eat off the vine. Come drink our water. Taste the sweet taste of honey. Come on, Hezekiah. Let's, let's just surrender now and we'll be done with it. Okay? And then in 2 Chronicles 9, 9 through 19, we have a little bit of an extended version here now of what he says. Later when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he's misleading you to let you die of hunger and of thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove the God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I, my fathers, have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of other nations ever able to deliver them from the land from their hand? Of all of the gods of these nations that my fathers have destroyed, have been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Do not be misled like this. Do not believe him, for no God or nation or kingdom has ever been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of his fathers. How much less will God deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the God of Israel and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the people of other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from mine. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and to make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other people and the work of the world, the works of men's hands. So he says, guys, Hezekiah, what are you doing? What are you going to base your confidence on? No God has been able to stand up against me. And this God that you think is going to save you is not going to be able to save you. And so to the people of Jerusalem, do not be misled by what Hezekiah is telling you. He's going to get you killed because this God that he is proclaiming is not going to save you. And so they terrify the people. These four challenges from Assyria are very similar to, I think, what the church experiences. Don't trust in your allies. Militarily, we will defeat you. Come and make peace with us, and your trust in God will fail. So let me address each one of these from the perspective of the church. 
He's right. We cannot trust in physical alliances. We cannot trust in man to save us. You know, we can't look to government and say government's going to fix all of our problems. Because man is fickle. And man changes like the seasons and the tides in the ocean. And one minute man will be on your side and guess what? The moment that it's no longer in their benefit, trust me, they will turn against you. And if we're going to put all of our hope and stock in government, well, guess what? Presidents change. Congress changes. What was appropriate once then is no longer appropriate now. And what's appropriate now at some point is not going to be appropriate then. And so if we are putting all of our stock that someone else is going to come along and save the church, guys, that is misplaced salvation because salvation only comes through Christ alone. So no, as the church, we cannot trust in others to save us. And military-wise, we have to understand something. God did not raise a theological army. God did not call us to preach down the barrel of a gun. God called us to bring a message of hope and love and grace and mercy. God called us to be willing to sacrifice ourselves, to give up our lives before we take it from somebody else the way that Christ did on the cross. That's what God called us to do. He didn't call us to brandish ourselves with weapons and guns and start marching forward. But, but I want to be very clear about this idea of an army. Because if we were, by chance, God wanted us to go this route, I want us to see a very important passage here. Matthew 26. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest him, Peter draws his sword and cuts off the servant's ear of the high priest. And Jesus says, Peter, what are you doing? You put that sword away. And then he says, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So Jesus is saying, listen, Peter, if I want to fight this battle, oh, I can fight this battle. And if you don't know, a Roman legion was about 6,000 troops. So in that moment, God said, I've got 72,000 soldiers on call. All I need to do is call my father, and they'll be here in a moment. So if we're going to fight this battle, just so you know, world, God is ready for it. And this last one about, this third one about making peace, this is where I'm most saddened. Because I think this is what the church has done today. The world has come at us, and we have compromised our faith. We have compromised our biblical values, and we have compromised the gospel for the sake of peace. And, and what, did, what did Assyria say? Listen, if you just come and, and, and make peace and surrender, you can eat from my vine. You can taste the sweet honey. You, you can drink the water. You can choose life over death. And the church has said, yes, let's make peace with the world. And you know what? Instead of being given goodness and honey, 
We've been slowly given poison and we're constantly dying on the inside. The church cannot compromise. The church should not compromise. And this church will not compromise. You know, when, when, when Paul is speaking to the church of Galatia, and, and what they want to do is the church of Galatia had this idea that, that they wanted to infuse the, the works of circumcision into faith. That somehow that being saved meant having Christ and you had to do this. And Paul's opening chapter to them, let me, let me read what this says in his opening chapter. Okay. He says in verse, in verse 1, sorry, it's Galatians 1, not Galatians 6. Galatians 1, 6 or 9, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. If somebody comes to us and says, this is the true gospel, this is what you should believe, and it doesn't match what God said on the cross, if it doesn't match that our salvation comes through Christ alone, through the blood of Jesus Christ, that is a perversion of the gospel, and we will stand against that. Did you catch that? He said it twice, that you are to be under God's... That's how serious God is about the sanctity of his gospel message. So we will not make peace. So we've only got one option left then, right? The world tells us that we're trusting in a failing God. Well, I beg to differ. Let's see how this plays out. 2 Kings 19, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. So first off, culturally, tearing your clothes was an outward symbol of the inward grief and turmoil that a person was experiencing. And the idea of putting on sackcloth, which is like a burlap sack and it's coarse and it's ishy, it was designed to, to reflect the, the uncomfortable nature that one was in. And so Hezekiah is saying, God, I am torn over this. And he comes to the temple. And then in verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all of the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see, and listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, the Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, 
so all of the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. And so he goes into the temple and he prays and he says, God, these people have been ridiculing who you are. These people are against us. And so, God, I am saying to you and I am pleading to you and I am praying to you, God, would you deliver us in this moment? And so God hears the prayer of Hezekiah and he sends a message to the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah then responds and he says, Hezekiah, here's what God says. Now, it's a, it's a pretty lengthy one, so I'm just going to give you two of the verses here. He says, we will not enter this city or shoot an arrow. He will not come in before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return and he will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. He says, Hezekiah, God heard you. And don't worry, nobody's getting in here. Nobody's going to touch my people. Nobody's, nobody's going to lay any claim that I can't do what I promised that I said I would do. And so God has his judgment on the people of Assyria. 19, verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. And so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. So when the world pushes in, guys, we don't fear. We have to remember that our strongest weapon is not in our preparation. Our strongest weapon is not in military might. Our strongest weapon is not even in our own righteousness and faithfulness and obedience. The strongest weapon that we have is an almighty, powerful God. It is an almighty, powerful God that created this world and sustains this world and knows everything that's going on. And at any moment, God can choose to do whatever he wants. So when we feel like the world is pushing in on us and we, we somehow have convinced ourselves like the world that God has abandoned us and God has left us to die, that is a flat out lie. Because what did God say? I'm going to defend my people and I'm going to defend my name. Because nobody can ridicule our holy God and get away with it. God will not be mocked. God will not stand in judgment from this world, from the people whom he created. And it may seem like God is not doing anything, but oh, trust me, God is always on the move. And I just want to go back to a moment here when in that garden, he said, I've got 12 legions at my disposal. I've got 72,000 angels on call. I just want to do a quick little math here. 
one angel goes out and kills 185,000 Assyrian troops. If we do the math, and God sent 12 legions, that's 13.3 billion people that if God wanted to, God could eradicate this world almost two times over like that. That is the kind of power that stands behind us. That is the kind of power that goes before us. That is the kind of power that is all around us. And when Jesus went to the cross and he said, it is finished, here's what Colossians tells us. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God has already won this victory. God has already won this war. And in ancient Rome, the Roman triumph was a great event. The Roman triumph was the idea that if a general went out and won a major battle, he would be allowed to march through the cities of Rome and the people would hold a parade and a festival. And they'd play music as this general was paraded in. And the people would lie in the streets and they would cheer. And behind him would be all of the spoils of victory. And it would be all of the, the prisoners that he had captured. Well, when it says God has triumphed by the cross, this was God's moment at the cross and the resurrection that Christ is parading through the streets and he's got Satan and death and our sin towing behind him and it is his victory and it is our victory that we rejoice in because the battle has already been won. So when the world threatens us with its rules and it threatens us with its laws, and it says we have an army standing outside your church. We will not be afraid. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to do exactly what Hezekiah did. We're going to pray. We're going to get on our knees and pray. And here's two things that I want to encourage you of what we're going to pray. First off, we're going to pray Matthew 5.44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Christ's desire is that all men would be saved. Christ's desire is to not send everybody to the gates of hell. If that was the case, he never would have come to the cross. If that was the case, he never would have told us to go out and to preach his message of love, grace, and mercy. And so when the world stands against us, we won't fear, but we will pray for our captors. We will pray for those that persecute us. We will pray for those that oppress us, that they may know the saving grace and joy of Jesus Christ. That's where our prayer starts is for them. And then the second thing that we're going to pray is Psalm 3. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. 
So I call to the Lord and he answers me from the mountain. I lie down and sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. For the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. We pray for those who persecute us. And then we pray for our protection. And we pray that God gives us the peace of heart that when the world assails us, that we can go to sleep at night knowing that God is there on guard and is watching. And we pray for their salvation. We pray for their repentance and their forgiveness. But if this world is not going to heed the calls to a holy and sovereign God, then we pray for God's righteous judgment on this world. And why? Because God said we are his children and he would protect us. And so we call out to God and we say, God, would you deliver us? So when the world challenges us and it surrounds us and it's ready to kill us, what do we do? We pray. Because what did I say already? I said the greatest weapon that we have is an almighty God. And the way that we access that almighty God is through prayer. Prayer is our most powerful weapon in this world. Let's pray. Father, even now you hear us. Father, we, we are grateful and we delight in the joy of knowing you as our Savior. Father, we delight in knowing that, God, you said you would protect us, that you would redeem us and you would save us. And it may not always look the way that we want and it may not go as perfect as we want, but, God, you are always there. And, Lord, so I, I pray for this world. I pray for America. I pray for a culture, Father, that has walked away from you. I pray for the redemption of the lost. I pray that, Lord, we would confess to you our sinfulness, our disobedience, and that we would come back and recognize you as the one sovereign God. And, Lord, at the very same time, Lord, I pray that your righteousness and justice would be done in this world. That, God, you would be with your people you would give us peace and comfort. And Lord, when it is time that we would stand boldly before this world and proclaim you as Lord and Savior, that we would be rather willing to die than ever pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us that kind of courage. Give us that kind of faith. Let us be the people that you called us to be for now and forever and always. Amen.